0: Welcome to Hungry for Words, a podcast in which I have lunch with a food writer and you get to listen in. I'm your host, Kathleen Flynn. My guest today is Robin Eckert. She writes about food and travel for a number of publications, including the New York Times, Sever, the Wall Street Journal, and the Wall Street Journal Asia. She is the author of the new book, Istanbul and Beyond Exploring the Diverse Cuisines of Turkey. She put the book together and did all the research, along with her husband, award-winning food photographer David Hagerman. She and her husband also published the award-winning food blog, Eating Asia. I'm excited to have you join us for our conversation today. We're going to talk about everything from how Turkish cuisine is about a lot more than kebabs, the famous spice that the war in Syria has made nearly impossible to get, and how maybe political borders aren't as important as we think they are. So I'm flipping through Istanbul and beyond, and, you know, it's a really big, thick, hardcover book, and it's pretty extraordinary, really. I mean, I've been to Istanbul. I went there a few times when I lived in London, and I actually spent some time there when I was producing an Elton John concert at Ephesus. A story for another time. But I spent some time there, and... You know, the interesting thing about this book is that when I flip through this book, the turkey that I recognize, which is a symbol, is barely in it because there's so much of the countryside. I mean, it, there are mountains and water and the sea, and it's just it really made me realize what a diverse. Country Turkey is and how extraordinary it is um, in terms of the way that their cuisine developed. So there's a ton of influence. And it's really represented, I think, very well here. I think they have everything from, you know, egg dishes you might find at a deli to the veiled chicken that they serve at weddings. So flipping through, I looked at all these different things. One of the things that um, I remember distinctly from Istanbul and, and my time there is um, grilled cheese sandwiches, which she talks about the fact that there is no single recipe for grilled cheese sandwich. But I thought, oh, it's not quite enough. And then I had another recipe that really uh, hit a memory for me, which were these market wings. Um, and it's tatakale, tatakale, tatakale. I don't know what the pronunciation is, but these market wings, and they serve them all over. I decided to do these. These are these market wings, and uh, and they have an interesting process to them because there are actually two marinades, and they're served with this thyme chili salt. So the first marinade is one medium onion that's just grated, and then another cup of apple cider vinegar. And of course, ever since I interviewed the author of Acid Trip, I've been really into uh, vinegar. So I've got this really awesome apple cider vinegar, and then just some sea salt. And you marinate that overnight. And then you do a second marinade, which is some olive oil, some chili, some cumin, some oregano, and some sea salt. And then you um, put that in the oven to, to kind of simulate having it being done over an open fire, which is how they would or, or barbecued, which is what they would do there. I just thought this looked great. So I'm gonna give it a try. So I got my chicken wings, I've got my onion, and I got everything set up. So I'm gonna go ahead and give this a try. So first, I've got my bowl, and now I'm going to grate an onion. And I'm gonna tell you, grating an onion, a very long process. I'm grating, I'm grating. <laughs> And next, I'm going to add some sea salt. I'm going to mix it up and then add the wings. So now I'm going to take these wings and I'm going to put them into a plastic uh, bag, just a Ziploc bag. It's what I always do when I marinate stuff. So basically, I have them in the marinade from last night. I'm going to take them out, put them on paper towels. And then I'm making this other marinade that includes olive oil and Aleppo pepper, which is like a chili pepper, uh, ground chilies. And uh, she makes a comment actually in the book saying that you can't really get a love of pepper anymore. So if you have it, then it's probably mislabeled or it's probably too old, but I got it from World Spice here in Seattle and they're pretty reliable. So I'm going to talk to her about it. It also includes oregano and uh, salt, sea salt. So I'm going to go ahead and mix those things together it smells good and then uh, take my wings that have been on the paper towel put them in here put them in the bowl I'm stirring them around and I'm using my tongs to stir them around and coat them I'm actually going to put these in the fridge for about maybe 40 minutes and then take them out uh, for about 15 minutes and let them get to room temperature and then I'll cook them so Okay, now I have to go clean my kitchen because it's kind of a mess. So Turkey, how did you get so interested in Turkey? I and uh,
1: the books photographer, David Hagerman, who also happens to be my husband. And I first visited Turkey in 1998. Uh, We were living in Shanghai at that time doing different things. He was working a corporate job and I was um, working on a PhD in political science. We just had three weeks in the middle of winter. It was Chinese New Year, and um, we had award miles that would get us to Europe. And uh, after looking at it more closely, it seemed Europe was beyond our budget traveling in Europe. So um, someone I knew, I don't even remember who now, said, you know, I I know people who have been to Turkey and they really liked it. So, yes, award miles would get us to Turkey in February, in the middle of winter. And we went and, and uh, spent three weeks, eight days in Istanbul, and then rented a car and drove south and then inland to An- in Central Anatolia and the Mediterranean, and uh, just basically fell in love with the country and um, the people and the food. And eight months later, when we moved back to the East Bay, where we'd been living before we were in China, I started studying Turkish at UC Berkeley, and my Turkish teacher was Ayla Algar, who has written a couple Turkish cookbooks. Um, that was serendipitous. The first year of Turkish, there were like nine people in the class. And the second year, there were two people in the class. And so she just split us into private tutorials. And she and I spent all of our time reading about food and talking about food and learning food words and and that kind of stuff. And we went to Turkey when we could, because Dave was working, so it was like two weeks of Vacation a year. And then we moved to Bangkok in 2002 and kind of set Turkey aside, our Turkey obsession aside, so we could focus on getting to know our new home and Southeast Asia. And didn't return to Turkey until 2010, so that was eight years. Um, by then, Dave had quit his job and he was uh, phot- photographing full-time and I was freelancing as a food and travel journalist. And we wondered before we went, you know, what had it been a situational thing, this um, love that we had for Turkey, had it been very specific to a certain place we were in our lives and uh, to the fact that we were living in China and we weren't happy there and that sort of thing. Or, you know, was it something more? And and it was like the minute we arrived in Istanbul and walked out of Ataturk out of Airport and got in a taxi and we're driving along the Bosphorus, it, I think we looked at each other and we're like, yes, we really love this place. And uh, by then we had the freedom and um, the ability to decide to make it, to try and do something in Turkey, to spend more time there. And the idea for the book came like a half year later when we were on the Black Sea coast, first time ever. Uh, And we're eating just things that we had never eaten in Turkey before, even though by then we'd spent a few months traveling around, Um, cornbread, uh, leafy greens, uh, lots and lots of fish, just food that at that time you didn't find in Istanbul. And so I think, you know, we thought, well, if, if we can find these really unusual dishes, um, that we've never experienced before in Turkey here, what else would we find if we continued to travel around parts of Turkey that not so many people get to? And so that's
0: when we decided to do regional cuisines in Turkey. I've been to Turkey, but I've been to Istanbul. and uh, And then I spent some time in and around Ephesus because I produced a Elton John concert there, which right, is a whole long that. story. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, for MSN. Yes, a okay. story for off the air, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but, you know, even when I went to Istanbul, I remember thinking, and you say this early in the book, like, I, my vision of Turkish food was kebabs and, you know... Baklava, meze. Right, exactly. And then uh, the very first night that I was in Istanbul, someone took us out to a restaurant, and it had it was all seafood, and it was amazing. And they had... Um, there's one recipe it's where similar. It's like a parchment. Parchment wrapped fish. Parchment, parchment wrapped fish with the bay leaves mm-hmm. and the different. And it was just so, and I had made, you know, fish and parchment before, but there was something different about it in terms of this sort of the language of the flavors, you mm-hmm. know, that they were more exotic and more lightly, a little bit more pungent or something. Mm-hmm. And that really changed my whole view of Turkish food. And, and ever since then, I've always been really, I guess I've had a passing interest in it, but not. And not until I really read your book. I went, wow, this is – I wanted to make everything in the book. Oh, that's like, great. Like I just thought it was – everything sounded <laughs> great. That's what a cookbook author wants to hear. <laughs> yeah. But I think one of the things that is striking is um, – and I think that most Americans who have not been to Turkey because most Americans don't actually travel outside the United States. But even for people who've been to Turkey like me, I've been to Istanbul, mm-hmm. but I certainly didn't go and leave the other whole part of the country. Mm-hmm. I mean I was on sort of the Isthmus, you know, part right. in the water. Um and what struck me really was how the geography of Turkey impacted the food that you uh-huh. had there. That was
1: something that we didn't realize when we started the book. But I guess we spent about 16 months on the ground and in Istanbul, but mostly in eastern Turkey. And those the first trips that we did, we always traveled by car. And we always picked a starting place and a finishing place, but never, um, you know, had an exact itinerary. And those early trips, maybe the first two trips, were really just, you know, kind of driving around and me with my notebook just observing very carefully the changes in topography and what was growing and uh, what animals were being raised. And so it wasn't really till maybe the end of the second trip that I had this really strong idea that I would not only look at regional Turkish regional cuisines in Turkey, but that I really wanted to bring to the fore the degree to which uh, what people eat in these various parts of eastern Turkey is so closely tied to the topography and the climate, really in a way that Americans, I couldn't ever have anticipated. It's hard for us to even imagine this kind of truly locavore eating even exists anymore.
0: It's also interesting because of all the countries that border Turkey. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent six months taking Iraqi cooking lessons oh, last cool. year. And so, um, when I was flipping through the book, I thought, oh, I could make this because I have some of these ingredients, particularly from the area that borders Iraq or right. Iran, because they you know, there's so many commonalities. And right. to me, when I was flipping through the book that I thought, one I guess I never really realized how many countries, <laughs> Turkey 40. borders, yeah, right. and they're all like, they're all like hotspots, you yeah. know, right? yep. <laughs> it's like Syria yeah. and Iran and Iraq's, and, um, and so from your experience of traveling there, I mean, if you think about all these, you know, these countries that have been at war and have, you know, a lot of political strife going on, you know, that border, Turkey, how do you think that's impacted the food that is actually prepared or, is traditionally associated with those areas?
1: Well, I mean, we haven't been back to some parts of Turkey since our last trip in 2015, of spring 2015, right before the election, um, because it wouldn't be safe to go right now to, um, especially those um, Kurdish province of Hakkari, um, which borders Iran and Iraq. But, you know, we were traveling around those areas when there were... Um, problems between the PKK and the Turkish government to put it mildly. And, you know, one thing that you find is, and it's intuitive, I guess, but maybe not, um, life goes on, you know, I mean, you still have to farm, you still have to, you still have to eat. It doesn't, it doesn't impact people on a day-to-day basis unless it's really awful. Like in Syria, one thing though, that, that I, I thought a lot about while writing the book it, And during the research is how uh, sort of artificial borders are, you know, um, because the food in in northeastern Turkey, I think I call the chapter the northeast, is there are Azerbaijani dishes that you'll find in an Azerbaijani cookbook or uh, influences from Georgia on the Black Sea coast. I mean, it's, it's almost the exact same cuisine. And, you know, I haven't had the opportunity to travel in Iran or Iraq, but I would assume that. You know, you walk across the border and they're eating basically the same thing because it is all about the terrain. And uh, Hatay Province, which is a Mediterranean province, that gets its own chapter because the food is so amazing. Used to be part of Syria until the early 20, early 20th century when when Turkey annexed it. I guess you'd say that's, Um the gentle way to put so it. <laughs> it's it's um, it's as much Syrian food as it is you know a Mediterranean Turkish food. That's what really uh, struck me. In, in researching the book is how, how really artificial borders are.
0: Flipping through it, I thought, oh, well, you know, some of these um, like stuffed dumplings are what I learned to make from an Iraqi cook and they mm-hmm. call them kaba. Mm-hmm. So right. everybody has a stuffed dumpling yep. recipe, right? But this one's almost identical. And in a bulgur dumpling, a, bul- a bulgur bulgar
1: dumpling absolutely. And, and meatballs, mm-hmm. Um, you know, kufte, yeah,
0: you know, they traverse borders. Yeah, I'm sure if you do the etymology it's all like kaba and kafta <laughs> Yeah, I think <laughs> end up coming from the they'll probably all st- I think the I same he- thing.
1: heard there's a there's a Persian um word called uh, that Kaftan, which means um needed or ground. And if you look at kafta in Turkey there's no way to classify, like, how do you describe what a kofte is? Because it can be a meat patty, it can be a meatball, it can be meatless, it can be uh, in a sauce, it can be dry, it can be grilled, it can be boiled. Well, one thing they all have in common is that they are uh, the ingredients are either ground or mashed together. So I would um, be convinced that that the origin of the word kofte is from the Persian
0: koftan. That would make sense. Yeah, it would. Yeah. So... Looking at Turkey now from afar and, and seeing all the, you know, the political happenings over there, you know, here's a place that maybe your soul lives there or some piece of your soul lives there. And then to see that happen, how has that felt? Oh, it's
1: sad, mostly. Parts of the East that we especially enjoyed, I mean, we enjoyed all of the research and we met Wonderful people everywhere, very hospitable people, but I have, feel especially drawn to those um, Kurdish parts of Turkey like Van and Hakkari, those provinces bordering Iran and Iraq, um, partly because the terrain is so dramatic and just breathtakingly beautiful, uh, not very developed, so you know, pristine in many ways. Turkish hospitality is big. Kurdish hospitality is as big, if not bigger. And so, yeah, I feel very sad for um, the fact that uh, the peace process was going beautifully on our last trip out there in spring of 2015 and that it's just now in shambles. And it just seems like such a waste, a waste of human resources and a waste, wasted opportunity. And, you know, it's just sad.
0: Yeah. One of the things that struck me um, about the way that you reported the book, so you have a lot of vignettes. Like mm-hmm. you have that there's a scene where you walk around the corner and you run into noodles, mm-hmm. and you share that whole story about the women making the noodles. Can you talk about that? Because I felt like those vignettes that you had throughout the book really gave me a sense of what life like kind of the rhythm of life mm-hmm. was was there?
1: Um, I think um, looking back, I probably approached the research more like a journalist than, you know, say a culinary anthropologist. I knew that I was writing about a cuisine that wasn't my own, and I didn't grow up in Turkey. Uh, I speak Turkish, but I don't speak Kurdish. So I had a real um, longing you know, I was determined to get things right to the extent that I could. And so uh, as a journalist would, part of our methodology was looping back and back and back to the same place again and again over different seasons and meeting people that we'd met before and really f- trying to fact check myself to the extent that I could. And it was really important for me to actually see things, to see um, ingredients being made, to to see how pomegranate molasses is made or to see how great molasses is made. And so a lot of that was planned. You know, I planned to be in a certain province that makes pomegranate molasses at a certain time of year. But then a lot of it was spontaneous like that. I had heard about um, this uh, tradition of making noodles in the fall, autumn to, um, to uh, last through the winter on a sunny day, a dry day, um, women will get together. And I'd always thought of it as a village thing. Um, but then we were in Car City, which isn't that big a city, but it is an urban area. And um, we were out walking one morning and it was a beautiful, unusually warm autumn day. And we did, we just turned a corner, uh, David and I, and it was sunny that day. And um, a woman named Julia and her daughters-in-law and some other relatives and neighbors had decided this was the day to make noodles. And they had hauled, uh, all the flour, all the tubs for mixing the dough in, uh, their hand cranked pasta machines down from their apartment to the street. And they'd hung up clotheslines and they were just cranking out noodles by the ton and hanging them on the clothesline to dry. And it's just like food is, makes everything so accessible and, um, it's just something that people love to talk about. And so uh, we watched them make noodles, and they told me that unlike in some other parts of Turkey, they take the noodles, after they're dried, they take them to the um, community oven, the traditional wood-fired bread bakery, to be toasted. And they were going to just wrap them up and do that, and then someone didn't show up with the car or whatever, and we had a car, we had a rental car, so we said, well, let's we can take you. And so we just um, wrapped the noodles up in, in fabric and, piled them in the trunk of the car. I mean, like 10 bundles of noodles. And then we went to uh, to the oven and it, there was a huge line and tempers were short. It was very hot. All the women are, you know, trying to cut in on each other. And we ended up waiting there like six hours and it was a hot day. T- and it was hot because it was a, a bread bakery to toast the noodles. And um, yeah, it was a slice of life. And I felt like, um, you know, I really appreciate the labor and the And the difficulty, and it's mostly women doing these things, they're going to have noodles all winter, yes, but they spent one really, really long, hot, tiring day, we didn't finish till 9.30 at night, making these noodles. And and every time they had noodles that winter, that was, you know, sort of a memory of that day. I mean, at least I would remember that day. Maybe
0: they would rather forget it (laughs) until the next fall. yeah. There's some uh, other things that I thought were, uh, other kind of dishes in the book that I thought were interesting because I think Americans would think of them as being very American. Right. For instance, grilled cheese Uh in Istanbul. And, you know, why is it that people, I I remember that from being in Istanbul that grilled cheese sandwich was like a thing. Like you go out late at night and you go and get this crazy grilled cheese sandwich. You know, talk about the grilled cheese sandwiches in Istanbul and, you know, how that's kind of a... A big cultural thing there.
1: Well, this is something that I've been doing for a long time uh, with the blog. Is like I, I'm for some reason I'm drawn to things that people take, people in that culture or that country or whatever take for granted, and I'd never um, seen anything written about grilled cheese, but. I think I was I was talking with a chef friend, um, and I happened to mention in Istanbul, and I happened to mention uh, grilled cheese, and he started. You know, this is a guy who's trained in France. He's, you know, does very high concept, beautiful cuisine, and he's just started going into this memory. You know, waxing nostalgic about the grilled cheese of his youth and the and the the grilled cheese shop down the road that he used to go to, and exactly what they'd put on it, and. That made me realize that this thing that is everywhere, because grilled cheese is everywhere in Turkey, you can get it on a ferry, you can get it from a buffet, which is a corner convenience shop, you can get it in a cafe at any time of the day or night, as you said, Uh, it's breakfast, it's lunch, it's a snack, that it it was so ubiquitous, it was so everywhere that people don't see it, you know, visitors don't see it. I mean, I, yeah, I really didn't, like, think about it much until he started talking about it. Um, I love good grilled cheese, too, but... And so I thought, you know, people are always arguing over what's a national dish. And well, I would argue that grilled cheese is a national dish in Turkey because you can, there are grilled cheese shops everywhere you go in the country. And I, my version, which I uh, put in the book is a grilled cheese sandwich with everything. I mean, I like, if you go to some of these buffets, they will have ingredients laid out and you can choose to put Whatever you want on your sandwich, we went to one shop and I wanted um, roasted chilies and uh, chopped tomatoes and olive paste and this and that and I named a few more things and the guy just said no, you don't do that. That's that's just like no, <laughs> that's just not done. You, you don't you don't go over the top like that. But that's a very American thing, right? To want <laughs> everything on your sandwich. Um, so my version in the book, yes, it has all. Everything that, and I'm sure, like a Turkish grilled cheese maker would never put all those things on a grilled cheese sandwich. But yeah, it's just it's an Istanbul institution. It's also a national dish.
0: I noticed in your bio that you worked for covering street food for Wall Street Journal Asia.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So how do you report street food? And, and I think that this grilled cheese story is a good one because, I, you know, this podcast is for food writers, or right? right. for people interested in food writing. And I, I think one of the things that really struck me and, and why I was so eager to talk to you is because I really saw, like, this – the journalistic – approach to things mm-hmm. like for instance grilled cheese is everywhere oh and then i heard somebody say and then i went back and i took another look at grilled cheese mm-hmm. and so and i think with street food because street food you know how do you decide what to report on how how do you report about it do you how do you see trends i mean i think that that's sort of an interesting area i, I think people focus a lot on what chefs are doing right but street food is often so just much more fascinating
1: um, while well, street food is traditional food, I mean, it's, um, usually starts out, at least in Asia and probably in Turkey too, as, um, food for laborers. Um, certainly uh, we lived in Penang for six years and um, there it started out because uh, immigrants came from China and uh, they came alone. They didn't come with their wives. Um, and uh, these were men who probably lived in a room, didn't have an apartment, uh, didn't cook for themselves and they needed something to eat. And so um, there are people on the street who will who will feed them uh, for not so much money. I just find... I mean, it's not that I, I'm not interested in what chefs are doing. I'm just more interested in sort of, I guess, what I'd call low-to-the-ground kind of cooking, um, everyday cooking, the common man's cooking, um, and that sort of thing. So how do you report on street food? Well, I guess uh, I report on it like I report on anything else. I Something catches my attention for some reason or another. Maybe um, the example of the grilled cheese sandwich because it someone brings it to my attention, and I hadn't really noticed it before. Maybe it's something that I love, uh, that I'm passionate about the flavor of. Maybe it's something that I find um, unusual and fascinating. Like there's a dish in Penang called Assam Laksa, and it's just, you know, hot and sour and spicy and sweet, and I love those flavors, and I'm just obsessed with the dish. And then you decide uh, where you want to go with it. Um, do I want to write about the history of the dish? can i even know the history of the dish i mean cuz so many dishes have disputed histories do i want to find the person who makes the best version in my opinion that i've ever tasted and do i want to get their story so do i want to use the dish as a way into uh, another a person's life or livelihood do i want to see how the dish has changed over time do i want to do i want to report on new you know hip hip versions of the dish i mean there's street food is is so great because it's so accessible and it's so everyday and it's so uh, delicious. Yeah. I mean, I, I would approach it the way to approach any food that catches my eye is just you know where do I think I want to go with this? And if it's if someone gives me eighteen hundred words, then I can go in a bunch of directions at once. But that doesn't happen much anymore.
0: No, <laughs> no, it no, doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> yeah. So I made actually speaking of street food, I made uh, the market chicken wings, mm-hmm. um, in part because I gave my husband three things that I might make, and he was like, "Oh, totally make those wings." <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, so I'm gonna uncover them because okay. I covered them foil to keep them kind of warm. All right. And uh, I only had got drumettes because it's a really big football weekend here. Okay. So there were, like, no regular there were no wings. wings. Oh, my
1: God. <laughs> it's
0: hilarious. Like, so I'm stuck with, like, little baby, like, kind of measly drumettes. But, um, but I followed the recipe and everything. So okay. tell me about this recipe and, and where you, you know, came across it and the origin of it and all that stuff.
1: Okay. So this is another one of those recipes, I think, like grilled cheese that, that are just kind of everywhere in Istanbul, but you don't notice it. And that's why I say, you know, this book, especially the Istanbul chapter... It's my Istanbul. It's it's things that I was interested to write about in this Istanbul. Um, I was perfectly aware that someone might pick up the book and go, what, you have a chapter on Istanbul and there's no manta or something like that. These are just things that that caught my eye. Chicken wings are, in fact, available all around Istanbul. We happened to, I happened to really notice them when we went to this area called Tatakale, which is a market street. It's um, a little... I'm thinking north of the Egyptian Spice Bazaar, which everyone goes to. And it's this warren of lanes where they sell everything for the kitchen. I mean everything from um, custom-made uh, copper stove hoods for restaurants and and professional grills to, you know, a stack of uh, 100 paper plates. And um, mm-hmm. you can get uh, these special braziers for, like, um, cooking eggplant on your gas stove to, you know, to get the skin smoky and that kind of stuff. And we were just wandering around looking at the stores because I actually wanted a knife. And uh, we turned this street and all of a sudden there were all these chicken wing places and it's rotisserie chicken wings. It's not grilled. And they're just They have these massive, massive rotisseries with chicken wings. They also have drumsticks, too. Mm -hmm. They're just going slowly on this rotisserie uh, over coals. And you go and you tell them what you want. You sit down, usually at little tables outside, and it's a set – it's like a set plate. It's usually um, bulgur pilav and a piece of um, flatbread and some chicken wings and maybe some um, chopped salad on the side. And I just thought the wings were great. I mean – I never associated chicken wings with turkey, and I just thought they were great, and I wanted to include them. And I think what's really great about them is um, this uh, thyme chili salt that you they serve on the side for you to dip them into. It's Basically, it's thyme and uh, ground chilies and salt. We found that most of the ones in Tatakale, I don't know about elsewhere in, in Istanbul, um, most of the ones in that area are run by Kurds who've um, come to Istanbul from the east. There's a lot of uh, westward migration in Turkey. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a great, it's a fast food. Yeah. I mean, you're eating on the street. It's not cooked literally on the street, but it's, it is very much a street food, fast food thing.
0: Right. Well, let's uh, okay. Let's give them a try. So, right. um, so i take one of these bigger ones if you want. Okay. <laughs> Since they're so little, it's like mm. embarrassing. So yeah. And I was into
1: this, uh, I love that You know, I love that you made these because it's not anything that anyone's asked me about in any interviews so far. Oh, good. Oh, yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, I'm into this. Mm -hmm. I love this. These are good. I really love this. chili time. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I used, um, I mean, it's one thing I found with this book or researching this book is, like, the, the degree that thyme or kekik in Turkish mm-hmm. it can also, it, it refers to a whole family of um, herbs like um, oregano savory mm-hmm. or thyme as we know it. And the degree to which it's used really aggressively in food. Right? Mm-hmm. there's one recipe for a chicken baked in a tomato sauce flavor with a thyme.
0: Oh, I saw that one.
1: And people kept saying, people have said to me, "Did you get? is there a typo on the amount of thyme? Because it's really a lot of dried thyme, but mm-hmm. that's just part of the cuisine. It's just this big right. – and just eating thyme-dried like this, you know, mm-hmm. not not cooking it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting because I would have thought that this would have been blazingly hot, mm-hmm. but it's not. Mm-mm. It's like um, salty and really savory and mm-hmm. A little bit of pop from the chilies because mm-hmm. the chilies
1: also have flavor. They're not just mm-hmm. hot. It's really good. Okay, i mean this last piece of
0: chicken. <laughs> These are really good. Mm-hmm. My They're. husband ate like half of them before he got here. <laughs> so I'm
1: like, stop it. We have to have some to talk It's a about. compliment.
0: Mm-hmm. I think what's really interesting is the flavor of this is the, is the vinegar.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And you can really still taste the vinegar, but it's not like overpowering. One of the things I thought was interesting in your directions, and like you're talking about ingredients, you're like, like wine vinegar is not no. used and that is not appropriate to to use that and you have other somewhere else you're like and don't use this thing as a substitution which i think is really interesting because because uh, home editors
1: cook- always want cookbook authors to put all the substitutions
0: that's right yeah and i think also it's it's good for home cooks to you know if you go well i don't have i don't have apple cider vinegar i'll use red wine vinegar
1: well because it would the flavor wouldn't be right too right. i mean just mm-hmm. because um Yeah, I mean, wine vinegar is just not used in Turkey, Mm -hmm. obviously, because, you know, for obvious reasons, there's not a lot of drinking outside of Istanbul and there's not there's not a huge enough wine production to support
0: the making vinegar. vinegar. Yeah, Um, absolutely.
1: And I felt like a lot of the dishes in the book are very accessible to the home cook and Many of them don't require any special ingredients at all. They don't require a trip to um, your Middle Eastern grocery store or Armenian grocery store where you can get a lot of um, Turkish ingredients. Um, So I felt it was okay to say, you know, sometimes don't, Mm -hmm. you know, like if you don't have pomegranate molasses, don't make the dish because lemon juice, it's just not going to be, it's not that it's not going to be right. It's just not going to taste delicious.
0: Mm -hmm. So... You know. And you don't want somebody to make a substitution and say I didn't like that right. when it was yeah. not the appropriate exactly right yeah. And so one of the things you talked about was Aleppo, so uh, spice. So I did actually go to World Spice and I got Aleppo. Mm-hmm. But you said kind of early in the ingredients section mm-hmm. that oh, if you find Aleppo, it's probably mislabeled or it's too old because there's just not a lot of Aleppo chili out there anymore. Mm-hmm. I think World Spice is probably has like because they've been doing it for a long time it's a specialty spice store Mm -hmm. but i just was really curious about that like to talk about the fact that you know you can't get this anymore and and it's largely because it comes from syria right Right. generally speaking
1: um something that i learned when i was actually writing about that and i don't I actually don't know if it made it into the final cut of the book, from a, a Turkish food journalist named Aylin Onetan, and I didn't know this, that under the Ottoman Empire, Aleppo was the capital of an administrative region that also included Gaziantep and Karaman Marash provinces in Turkey. And the peppers, the chili peppers that make the chili grown in Marash and Antep are often the same pepper that is grown was grown in Aleppo to make Aleppo pepper. And so it's it's highly likely that even when people were buying pepper labeled Aleppo pepper, some of it was coming from Marash or Antep in Turkey because they're the same pepper. So, I mean, it sort of looks like here it says Aleppo pepper. On, it says Aleppo mm-hmm. on the world spice. To me that that says something more of like uh, what the pepper is than where it came from. That probably makes uh, sense. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, you can't get Aleppo pepper anymore, but, you know, you can look for mirage pepper or antep pepper. But I also tell people that, you know, all over Turkey, Turks, people in Turkey like love their backyard gardens. They grow stuff on balconies. They're big preservationists. They like to do a lot at home, even if they're in the city. Um, and pe- everyone's growing chili plants growing chilies. And all kinds of chilies are used all over Turkey. They use a different chili entirely on the Black Sea coast, several chilies. So I don't, I don't fuss too much about what kind of crushed red pepper people use. If you Mm. use a pepperoncino, it's just fine. It's going to be hotter. So you have to be aware of that, but I'm not going to get that particular about it. I just want people to make something that's got some chili in it.
0: Yeah, and it is true. I, when I was flipping through the book, I thought, oh, I've got this, and I've got that, and I can Ooh. make this, and I can make that. And, and I used uh, apple cider vinegar, but I also just uh, got a bunch of vinegar from, right. from interviewing the author of Acid Trap, Travels in the World of Vinegar, and I had some fig vinegar. Mm. So I added just a little bit into that just to oh, give it yeah. a little bit more – yeah, just give it a little bit more flavor.
1: Yeah, I mean but, a Turkish cook would use just straight grape vinegar, mm-hmm. you know, right. or apple vinegar. But I've also seen seen other vinegars on the Black Sea coast because, again, people make their own.
0: You lived for twenty years in Asia, is that uh-huh. correct? Mm-hmm. So, are you? Is your next book going to be an Asia cookbook or no? That's <laughs> well, funny because earlier you said we were living in China and we weren't very happy. Why? Why were you not happy in China? Oh, I I actually started out as a
1: China person. I studied Chinese history in um, undergrad, went to China for a year after university to teach English in the mid eighties, and studied Chinese politics in graduate school. And China is okay. People call it people who like know China and are into China call it the China noose. It's like you you go to China and you fall in love with it, and I did fall in love with it. I felt the same love of China that I feel now about Turkey, and then it pulls you back. You know, you just can't get away from it, and and so it kept me in grad school, and then and Dave and I returned to live in China in the um, mid nineties, and. It seems like people who love China go one of two ways. They Either, you know, they move there and that's it. They're there for the rest of their lives. They will never leave. Or they reach a point where it's like, I've had enough. I can't deal with it. Because China is, it presents its challenges if you're working there, if you're living there. I just was, I was tired of uh, the life in Shanghai. I was tired of butting my head against bureaucracy. I was tired of dirty air. I, we were, yeah, we were, we loved Shanghai, the first uh, two years we lived there, but by the time we left, it was like, I just want to leave. Mm-hmm. I need something different. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: I, I can get that. I mean, it's hard. I think, you know, it, uh, you go to Asia and you can't, you don't fit in as a Westerner. So you're always. You'll never fit in yeah. because you
1: look different. I mean, right. people here in America know that feeling. And it's fine for some people, you know, it's, it's just, I just, you know, I was tired of it. I think also, yes, in China at that time, and probably still, it's like everywhere you go you hear, why go run, why go run? It means foreigner. Mm-hmm. I mean, people will like shout down the street, why go run? And this is in you know a city like Shanghai that's supposed to be a cosmopolitan <laughs> capital. And you just <laughs> want to be anonymous. That's my thing. You know, It's like, sorry, Shanghai, it's not you, it's me. It was me, <laughs> it was time to go.
0: <laughs> I've been there, but only as a only as a tourist. So I wouldn't, but I, I did definitely have the feeling of, and it's true whenever you travel in Asia, like you know, I'm pale and white, and I have green eyes, and
1: and I sweat a lot. Yeah, in Southeast Asia, it's like I'm I'm a big sweaty foreigner. <laughs>
0: you're tall too. Yeah. See, I'm small. I am short, so that that I'm not towering above people. But you're you're tall. I'm tall. Yeah. Yeah. I stick out. Yeah. And I have gray hair,
1: and no self respecting Asian woman would ever let her hair go gray. <laughs>
0: So they're just <laughs> like, what? <Yeah. laughs> but so now you live in Italy. Is yeah. That correct? We yeah.
1: moved um, from Penang, uh, yeah, from Penang, Malaysia in, in, over the summer to southern Piemonte.
0: Hmm. So and how, how is that treating your life in Italy?
1: Oh, well, I love it. Um, it was a big, it's, it was a change in lifestyle. And again, that was a really kind of a lifestyle change. We'd been living in Malaysia for 12 years, uh, Penang for six years. We renovated a shop house in Georgetown, which is a UNESCO world heritage site. And it just, you know, first of all, we wanted to be a little closer to the U S because our parents are aging. It's, um, easier to get here from Europe than it is from Asia, shorter plane ride. Uh, we wanted to be here more often. And also just uh, where we were living, Georgetown, really urban, intensely urban environment. I mean, Seattle's like a village compared to the way Georgetown feels very urban. And so we just made a decision for the sake of clean air and peace and quiet and open green spaces and long walks with our dog outside to 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 leave Asia and we'd visited Piemonte in 2001 for the first time and really fell in love with it. So we just made the move when we're in a village of 200 to 400 people, depending on season. And it's a big change, but
0: it's, it's great. It's wonderful. So is your next book going to be on Italy?
1: Um, I think there are definitely stories to be told in Piemonte, but we just moved there. We mm-hmm. don't speak Italian yet. Uh, the experience of doing this book on Turkey was very organic. It came from a place of, if not knowledge, if not deep knowledge, then deep comfort in being there and being able to get around. And if we did something on Italy, I would want it to come from that same place of a sort of natural result of being somewhere and knowing it and loving it.
0: So how did you go from studying political science to becoming a food and travel writer?
1: Turkey, probably, when we went back to the East Bay after our first trip to Turkey and I started studying Turkish, I was supposed to be working on my dissertation in Chinese politics. And I had this passion, this new passion for Turkey. And I'd found in China, because I had a China concentration, that I didn't really want to live there again. I didn't want to spend months and months working there again. I didn't want to work in China again as an academic the research process was trying and frustrating. And so uh, we were back in Berkeley and I just um, slowly came to the realization that I was not going to finish the program. And then we moved to Bangkok um, a couple years later and I think being in Bangkok um, just kind of blew my mind. I hadn't really spent any time in Southeast Asia. Food was everywhere, street food was everywhere and so accessible and I just started I don't know, I guess I just started thinking, well, what if I what if I changed my concentration to be politics and food and then I eventually allowed myself to admit to myself that look, I just don't want to be in academia. I don't want to teach. I want to write about food and okay, that took a few years, but <laughs> and then we moved to Malaysia in 2005 and started the blog and that was really kind of my break.
0: Mm. Do you think that the kind of rigor of academia, though, makes you a good journalist? Yeah,
1: I do. I think it made me. It makes me a better writer. I use skills that I developed in grad school. Um, my dissertation research uh, involved interviewing farmers, and it also involved doing archival research. And so I was comfortable. I like that. I like having an excuse to talk to people and you know, state my own curiosity about the way they live and their lives and what motivates them. And in my research, I had always been in, in, at Berkeley, I'd always been interested in grassroots. I'd never been interested in elite politics. I had no interest in what was going on in Beijing. I wanted to know what farmers were doing. So I've, I kind of took those interests, that grassroots interest in those skills and interviewing and researching, um, document, documentary research, and I just moved it to food.
0: Right. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean that in terms of being able to take like this other set of skills and then apply them over here,
1: and also you know that concern, like that journalistic concern for getting your facts right, mm-hmm. because you'll be called out in in an academic paper if you don't have your facts right. And so I already had that kind of like I'm not just going to go wishy washy and loosey goosey on when I'm writing about something. I really want to I want to make sure I get it right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I. I went to Columbia College in Chicago, oh. and I started writing for the Chicago Sun Times when I was only nineteen. Oh wow! I and in Chicago that. at the time, they had its in like Chicago journalism. There's a saying: if your mother says she loves you, check it out. <laughs> <And> <laughs> That's so, so true. I can remember having editors say, "Well, where did you get this information from?" And I'm like, "Well, I got it from you know someone at." Some authority, like the police department. Well, who else says this is happening? And you know, you know, right. two sources is lazy. You need to get three sources. And and I and I think that sort of that always looking over my shoulder to wonder, right. like,
1: Wait, you're <laughs> worried about someone finding something wrong and right. something you wrote. And mm-hmm. I I wish there was more of that in food writing. Actually,
0: I agree. Um,
1: I, there's I agree. a little too much. Um, I just read stuff that's wrong all the time. <laughs> it bugs sure. me.
0: Well, I think that, you know, I think one of the things that I really appreciated about your book is that I could really tell that you spent a lot of time researching. Like you can tell things that are not researched well. They're they're loose. There's not a lot of... Detail. Yeah, or evidence that, you, that someone talked to someone. Right. Like that always, I think that there's sort of a lot of reliance on, well, I looked it up on Wikipedia and so that, and and Wikipedia must be accurate, <laughs> oh, <laughs> which is you know just not. It's true. easy enough to pick up the
1: phone. I always feel mm-hmm. it's easy enough to send an email to just check a fact out, and I I would rather do that than mm-hmm. than put myself out there as you know being called out on just kind of getting something really wrong.
0: One of the things I tell I teach food writing, and I always tell my students is every story, whether it's a blog post or you're writing you know, for a more traditional publication, every story is always better, the more people you talk to.
1: Right. It'll also just like add angles to a story that you never even dreamed of. And and it will also probably give you ideas for future stories. I mean, I love that what we do is basically gives us an excuse to talk to people. I'm a shy person. I'm not an outgoing person. But when I'm in reporting mode, I'll ask any question. And I love that I have an excuse to do that.
0: Right. Me too. Yeah. So this is your first book. Was it a fun project? What surprised you? What was what was difficult that you didn't expect?
1: The funnest part was the research. Certainly those road trips uh, with Dave, we were together most of the time, but then he would take off to do his own photography um, and I'd have time to go over my notes or write or whatever. Yeah, just being out there in Turkey and cruising around uh, and stopping wherever and meeting whoever and cementing and increasing my knowledge of the way agriculture works and how farming works and how fishing works and all that, um, that was definitely the funnest part. Recipe development was, I was not really a recipe writer before I started the book and that was very intimidating. It took me actually like six months um, before I I could bring myself to get into the kitchen and start developing recipes. I don't know why, it just was like, I was scared. And then um, after I started doing it, I found that though it was exhausting and that you get tired of eating the same thing again and again. I know that feeling. (laughs) It was also incredibly fulfilling. You know, okay, I just nailed this recipe. That's one recipe that I nailed. I've written it. I've sent it to recipe testers. And it's just, it's like writing. It's so hard to measure your progress. But when you when you've finished a recipe and you've nailed it, that is something you can look at and say, I did this today. Uh, whereas you're sitting in front of a computer screen and trying to conjure words, it's not quite the same. The writing, uh, writing is never, it's never really enjoyable for me in the moment. But it's always a great feeling when it's done. <laughs>
0: That's exactly how I feel. <laughs> well, I, so why
1: I, do we do this? I why don't do we keep doing
0: this? It's I like, like self-flagellation. <laughs> <laughs> I, right? I mean, I find writing often easy. Like, it's easy for me to put things down. But I'm very hard on myself when I go back and read it again later. Yeah. So I don't know that I enjoy actually writing, but I like having written like I I like it when it's done. Although sometimes I go back and read stuff that I even like my books and I'll go back and Oh, God, I could have done that better. I'm my
1: worst critic. Yeah, you probably are too. I haven't actually sat down with the book and looked at it. I got my advanced copies, but I just I'm not really at a place where I want to read through it yet. I don't know how I'll feel about what I wrote. I was surprised at how much work goes into a cookbook. And probably more because this was my first cookbook and we spent a lot of time on research. I had way too many recipes to include. Um, So I probably did too much work. But it's exhausting uh, I thought that I wanted to do a project that was a, a big project because I was tired of you know those small freelancing1,000 words here, 800 words there. I wanted to sink my teeth into something and it was really a joyous thing for that. Uh, just not having to think about pitching a story you know every other day or whatever was great. But by the time I turned in you know the last rewrite or whatever, I was so tired of Istanbul and beyond. <laughs> but now I'm, I, but now I'm ready to, for another project. I I would like to do another book. Okay. Overall, it was a great experience with hard parts, like any writing project. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. And I have a book, so that feels good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you, you should sit down with your book because it's great. <laughs> okay. I thought you did an amazing job. I thought it was great. Thank you. <laughs> so I, I also liked it because it's a, You know, I'm one of those people who reads cookbooks like novels. And so often they're just recipes. And I, what I think what I really liked about it was that it's a writer's cookbook and a reader's cookbook. There's a lot to read and a lot to learn. and That's what I wanted it to be. Yeah, so you did a great job. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for coming to my kitchen. This has been great. Well, thanks for having me over to your kitchen. (laughs) Yeah, totally. I'm going to talk to you about your next book. And I'm going to eat some more wings.
1: Let's do it. Okay.
0: Okay. My guest today in my kitchen has been journalist and author Robin Eckert. We were discussing her book Istanbul and Beyond, exploring the diverse cuisines of Turkey. You can learn more about her at the award-winning blog that she creates with her husband, photographer David Hagerman, eatingAsia.typad.com. You can find the recipe for the market-style chicken wings, which were delicious, with the chili lime salt at hungryforwords.show. Today's show is produced by Abby Circatella. Music is by AudioNautics.com. We'd love to hear your feedback, so leave us a review on iTunes, or you can even send us an email at info at That's it for our show. Eat well and be kind. I'm Kathleen Flynn.